You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. Before we continue, just a reminder, we really, really appreciate your feedback. So reach out to us on Twitter at BH Photo Video with the hashtag BH Photo Podcast. On this episode, we're going to continue our conversation with photojournalist Adrian Oanesian. Adrian is based in East Africa and has covered the civil war in South Sudan and the internal displacement of Sudanese in Darfur. She has also photographed women rebel fighters in Burma. And in the second half of our chat with her, we're going to talk about her experiences in these war-torn areas and her feelings on what characteristics are important to be successful as a photojournalist and specifically as a female photojournalist. Welcome, Adrian, and welcome to my colleagues, Jill Waterman and John Harris, who will join us for this conversation. Adrian, can you tell us, when did you first pick up a camera? What made you say, ooh, I like photography? Where were the seedlings of all of this? I think I first really started shooting in eighth grade. I think I was 12 or 13. My mom had an old film camera, and our school had a tiny, dingy darkroom. So that's when I first first started with it. But I think I really didn't understand what photography would allow me to do in terms of exploring people's lives until uh, I was studying in Indonesia. And that wasn't until university. Um, so that's that's when it really, really began for me. That's when I really started to, to understand how to explore stories with a camera. What was the first story you did? What was the first assignment that you got? The first assignment that I yeah. got. I wasn't assigned anything for a really long time. I think. What about the first picture you saw? Well, yeah, more. What was the first thing that you wanted <laughs> to what, do? What was the first? Yeah, what was your first project? What, what was the first thing you said? Hey, I want to do more than just a snapshot. I want to do a series on these, on this. Well, it was funny actually. When I went to the International Center of Photography here in New York, mm-hmm. we had to do a final project. And I just couldn't come up with the final project. And a lot of people did amazing things and, and got these big stories published. And I ended up photographing in a little park on the Lower East Side and kind of did a children's version or view of this park as like a magical place for the for these kids. And they weren't even kids. They, were, they could barely walk. <laughs> um, so it was this Alice in Wonderland sort of story. Which is funny now, looking at that compared to the things I photograph now, which is great because our, our teachers always used to say to us, you know, what you do in school doesn't determine the rest of your life and your photography career. And what an amazing example of that. <laughs> I know actually that I'm used as an example by one of the teachers as, she probably doesn't say it like this, but look at how ridiculous her final project was at ICP. But don't worry, she's she's doing cooler things now. So <laughs> I think, um, so yeah, you just you just never really know. But I did I did go over to Sudan to work on a project with a one of my best friends, and that was a story that was more about the culture in eastern Sudan uh, with nomadic tribes there. We were going to try to tie it into environmental issues and desertification. Um, it ended up not going much of anywhere, 
but it was our, our first shot. Um, I think we did a small story afterwards on the banning of plastic bags mm-hmm. in why Port su- Sudan. Why Sudan? Why Sudan? I mean, we live on a huge planet. I mean, what actually got you centered there? What 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 attracted you to that spot of the earth? It was really the people. And at the time, it was just a fascination with the culture there that was so different from anything that I'd ever experienced. I really, I really do think it was the culture. You have you have people there who are still living a nomadic lifestyle, who are on the back of camels. You have people who, yeah, literally living the same way for thousands of years. Um, but then you also have an extremely wealthy capital city, an oil-producing country. Um, and then you also have this this conflict in Darfur, which I had heard about in the early 2000s. Um, I think we all heard about it but didn't really understand. I didn't understand at the time what that really was or what it meant. Um, so I think a combination of all all of those things. But and yeah. what, year, what year did you go over there the first for this project or the first time you went to, to East Sudan? The first time I was there was in 2004, I think. Okay. So quite a while back. Mm-hmm. And then when I when I finished at ICP, I I went back over. I think I, I finished at ICP in June 2010, and I think by September I was back in Sudan. Um, and I also I also knew when I went over that the South was about to secede from the North, or I didn't know that it would secede, but I knew that there was a strong likelihood that it would. Um, so that was a big piece of it as well, mm-hmm. was that this was something that would be in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really clear on what was going to happen, but I, I did know that that would, that would be something newsworthy. Um, and as someone who had no idea what they were doing, um, to have the possible formation of the world's newest country was something I thought the world would be interested in. So um, so I, I did end up going down to South Sudan November 1st, 2010, uh, and that was just before the referendum, um, the referendum vote to decide if South Sudan would secede from the north, and that's kind of where it all began. Interesting. Did you have um, interest from editors on the story or were, were you entering into it just with the hope that there would be someone interested? Oh, I didn't know anyone when I went there. I didn't even have permission to be in the country when I went there. I had tried at the time the SPLA, which is now the ruling party in South Sudan, but at the time was just a rebel group in Sudan, uh, was issuing permits. I didn't even have a permit to get there. I knew two people on the ground. I, I didn't even really know what an editor was. I didn't really have much of a plan. Um, How do you get in if you don't have any documentation? Or I, I bought a ticket and snuck through the airport. Uh, I went back about a week later to get a permit to be there. Um, but no, I, I didn't. I didn't know um, really how it worked. I had a few email addresses of people in New York. Um, I would send them things all the time. I would put little photo stories together and and send them off into the internet, and uh, never really got a response and for years. So it was just years. a black hole, and absolutely, yeah. And I I would go around. I printed some 
business cards in Juba, the capital of South Sudan. Uh, printed some business cards, used to go around to all the organizations that were there, the NGOs, went around to the UN, um, and started photographing for some NGOs. And uh, at that time, again, started photographing uh, a bit for UNICEF, uh, and I continued to photograph for UNICEF. But that was literally me knocking on people's doors with South Sudanese printed business cards. I'm amazed. I've, I've heard this a lot where, where, where photographers, they get involved in projects and they admit after the fact that if they went through the proper procedures and did everything according to the way it's supposed to be done, they never would have done it because it would have just been too overwhelming, too much trouble. And sometimes going there, not knowing all the rules and just saying, oh, I'm just going to go do this is really the best way to go. <laughs> That's what it seems. See, I, can't, I can't say yes because I don't know if it's something that I would recommend. But sometimes being naive could work to your because again, you just you didn't know there was a problem, so you just went and did it. Yeah, you could get yourself in a lot of trouble doing that. But I, I think it's interesting. I've heard this story before where yeah, you know, if I if I if I went through the right channels and did this the way it's supposed to be done, it never would have happened. Sure, and I think part of it is just you do whatever you can do to try to keep yourself alive and kicking. And that was what I could do at the time. So I, I did it. Did you have support from your family in doing this? Support on, on being, well, on wandering around South well, Sudan. Um, yeah, making the decision like this and, and going over there and deciding to kind of start your, your career this way. Yes and no. I think they've always been supportive of really whatever I choose to do. Mm -hmm. um, they definitely still ask me when I'm coming back from my African vacation. <laughs> um, and I say, no, I, I live there now. I've been there almost six years. Um, and But I think also it was a slow start. Mm -hmm. So for the first couple of years, I definitely got the phone calls of, well, is this working? Mm -hmm. what, are, what are you doing exactly? Did you get this out of your system already? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I still get that question. When are you going to grow up? I yes. still get that question. <laughs> I'm not sure I plan on growing up, but um, <laughs> two points. But yeah, I. It was a slow. It's a slow process, and even now, I think the most satisfying part of having things published online is that I can send links to my parents and say, "Look, I'm doing something. I'm I'm progressing." Um, which is great, but it's never, I don't think it's, I saw an interview with an artist one time and he was saying as, as artists and producers, there's no such thing as succeeding because you still have to wake up every single day and do mm. the same thing. And do there's, it better. <laughs> exactly. There's never going to be a time where I can lay in my big posh bed in my posh house and make a phone call and have someone go out and photograph for me right. or go to a meeting for me and, and meet with a rebel group and say, oh, there's this girl. She's still in bed, but she'd really like to embed with you. <laughs> that, that's just not something that's going to happen. So, yeah, I, I think it's been slow. and um, But, of course, they've, they've always supported me. Hundred percent. When you, when you, even you if know, they think I'm insane, right? Right. <laughs> well, I'm, I hope that. Uh, but they probably right. knew that before <laughs> I went. <to> <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so when you did go over there, and and you were kind of, I mean, you had an idea of what was going on in the country, and that it might possibly make stories. Did you have a sense of what kind of stories you wanted to follow, separate from the big news issues of the day? Were these on your radar at that point, or not really? 
A little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but I also think when a door opens, you have to step through it, mm-hmm. especially if you haven't seen a door in a while, <laughs> uh, which was kind Ooh. of the case in South Sudan. Um, but no, I, th- I think just just talking to people and and exploring things. I mean, so much of it is just talking to people. Mm-hmm. I think one of the first stories I did in South Sudan was on landmines. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about landmines, and then all of a sudden, you're spending a week with an organization and with people who have been affected, mm-hmm. and then you become an a professional. On, you're an authority on, on landmines. landmines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's spectacularly interesting. So it is almost better to go with. No agenda, or, or um, not try to chase or pin yourself into certain stories. One of the things I was interested in there was maternal and child health, so I, I did try to to find people who were working on those sorts of things. Um, Doctors of Without Borders, I did a bit of work for them with UNICEF, um, a bit of work with them, but also at the time. South Sudan just had a wonderful feeling to it because they were independent; they'd right. been fighting a a war for decades. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of hope there and a a lot of excitement. So was the fact that it was a newly forming place helpful to be able to reach out to people and get connected? It was extremely helpful also because people welcomed you with your camera. Mm -hmm. Um, And Sudan is extremely cut off. South Sudan at that time, it was so easy to photograph because People were proud of what they had created, and and they wanted to show that off. So it was really easy to work with the government. It was really easy to work with people. Um, And that's the best. That's the ideal situation is when, for better or for worse, people know why you're there, and they're interested in telling the same story that you are. And at the time, that was a story of hope for South Sudan. I mean, in the opposite direction, working in Darfur, people understand why you're there with a camera because they're being starved and attacked by their own government. So in both situations, for better or for worse, those are the great situations because you're really working together with the same interests. So in South Sudan, uh, how long did that arc of a story of hope last? Well, I've kind of, I've kind of followed the country, and a lot of, a lot of people do say, well, you went over to to this place to photograph war and and destruction and and suffering and and no actually when i when i first got there it was this great place with a lot of with a lot of hope and excitement that descended in, into war and so and i followed that i think the first time i was really subjected to violence was in 2012 so a couple of years after i got there um, I really dove headfirst into it. Again, it, it wasn't necessarily something I was prepared for, but um, landed in this border town of Bentu, and we had heard some, about some skirmishes on the border and had gone up, and all of a sudden we're being bombed, and you learn very quickly how to how to handle yourself. Luckily, I've always been surrounded by great colleagues, um, many of whom are much more experienced than I am. Uh, but that was, again, it was a country I'd been working in for two years at that point, and it just seemed natural that if these people were, were going to go to war, then that's where I was going as well. Um, and again, so that was just a small skirmish, but uh, in 2013, a uh, civil war broke out in South Sudan, 
And I've, I've continued to cover that. Um, not necessarily because it's war, but this is the place I know. And um, I, I think I do have a bit of an advantage there because I'm comfortable with the people and the place um, and to be language? able to cover it well. The language? Are you... My Arabic is all right. Okay. It's not great. It's probably not even good, mm-hmm. but um, I can... Serviceable? Yeah, I can, I can move around well. I can speak basically with people. I can order any type of tea or coffee that you'd ever want. But actually, most, most of the people don't speak, don't speak Arabic. A lot of them speak um, their tribal languages. Mm. Uh, and most of those I'm just at a loss because yeah. there are hundreds. Of course, yeah. Um, but this comes down to a great part of our job, which is I tend to communicate with people most of the time without language. I really mm-hmm. don't need language. I, I use hand gestures if you're observant. Um, Eye contact. A lot of it, English. yeah, a lot of it isn't about speaking. Obviously, it's important. <laughs> um, but, yeah, majority of it is just... I once spent a week in a French-speaking area, and I don't speak French, but I found within a half a day, it was amazing how you can communicate with your eyes, with gestures and everything else. That's just really interesting. Is it safe to assume, and I don't like making assumptions, but is it safe to assume that you're itching to get back? Yes. Um, But part of that is... Kenya now, where I'm, I'm based, is is my home. It's home. Okay. That's that's where I can go and and drop my bags, even unpack occasionally. Um, take shampoo out of a big shampoo bottle as opposed <laughs> to one of those little ones. That was something I noticed recently. Um, but I'm just on the move so often that that that's part of it as well. Even if I'm not home, just to be able to have a base. Um, those are the, the pleasures of, of home. Um, but then I'm, I'm also itching to get back to continue working on stories. And what, is, what stories will you getting, be getting back to? What? I'm still, for me personally, I'm, I'm still interested in working on Sudan. And it, it seems that that work will be mainly in, in rebel-controlled territories. Um, whether or not that's the Nuba Mountains of South Kordofan um, or getting back to Darfur. Uh, But these are always things that are on my radar that I'm working on, but it's just a slow, slow process, Um, which is fine. Uh, Most of that is is because of safety concerns. So that's something that's always in my mind. We're going to take a short break. More with Adrian Oanessian when we come back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Can you speak on the, uh, the photograph that won the, uh, the World Press Photo Award in Darfur and how, uh, how you came to be there and the situation and, and also well, where that photo found homes, where it was published and how that changed things for you and your career, if it has yet? Well, that one image, it was interesting that the image was chosen for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the trip into Darfur 
was a huge accomplishment, not necessarily because of the work that we took out of there, but because it's just so difficult to get there. I think we were the first foreigners in the region in five years. Wow. Um, so that in itself is a huge accomplishment. Absolutely. Um, that is actually, I don't want to say it's more meaningful to me, but I can't describe to you how, how difficult it was physically and mentally. Um, sometimes I feel like the photographs don't even express, um, express that. Uh, the photograph of Adam, who was a seven-year-old boy, uh, he was badly burned. Uh, the government basically just drops bombs. Um, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to the way they do it. Um, a lot of times the civilians are targeted simply because they're inside of rebel-held territory. So the government says the civilians are backing the rebels. Um, so one of these bombs landed just outside of his house, uh, lit part of the house on fire, and he was he was tossed into into the blaze. Um, his shirt lit on fire. Somehow, miraculously, he took his shirt off, um, and and was just badly burned. Um, he was he was speaking to us when we walked in the house. Uh, we interviewed him and his mother. How soon afterwards, with, with, from the bombing, did you actually photograph? Because I knew he was still scarred on the pictures. Yeah. What was the time separation between them? I believe it was about a week. Okay. A week to 10 days. Um, so it seemed, I've had a lot of questions about whether or not he received treatment. Um, it wasn't entirely clear what was put on the burn. It looked like someone had put something on it to, to help it. Mm -hmm. um, but in this area, there are no organizations working. The UN isn't allowed in the area. Um, again, we were the first foreigners there in five years. There's no running water. There's no electricity. Which brings me, I, I, you just said something, and, and, and it's been going in my head, and I was waiting for an opportunity to say it. You just said there's no electricity, and you're shooting a digital camera. Is it safe to assume that? How do you charge your batteries? There are solar panels. Okay. Um, All right. We were traveling with uh, solar panels and a, and a charger. All right. Okay. Um, it was very difficult. I have a lot of camera batteries. Um, I didn't look at any of the photographs until I was back in Nairobi. So I literally would... You turn your screen off. Just anything to off. save power. Everything's Smart. off. Okay. So loading up memory cards into my computer onto the hard drive, computer off. Um, we had two laptops, so sometimes one would be dead, sometimes one would have battery. Um, but that was a big, that was a big struggle. Uh, they have lots of different ways to rig batteries to solar panels. Oh, they're uh, very inventive. I, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it was tough. Um, so you really shot the same way a film photographer would be shooting war situations 30, 40 years ago, essentially. You, you, you were shooting just, you know, hoping that everything was doing what it was supposed to be doing. Yeah, and you don't you don't really have any other choice. No. Um, and, yeah, I, I shot some film as well, just in case. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're operating on minimum of everything, literally. Minimum food, minimum water. Conservation um, takes on a whole new meaning in every single thing you're doing oh, there. Oh, yeah. 
Um, we're getting water from the bottom of dry riverbeds. Um, water is transported by donkey. Um, food, we brought quite a bit of our own food. Um, some of it we're getting there. But really, and, and it makes you under the, understand the conflict better as well. Because so many, it always makes me angry when people say, well, these conflicts are over something as basic as, as land and water resources. And you think to yourself, these aren't basic things. These are the only things that are keeping people alive. You know, people's animals. It is a big deal when a bomb drops and someone's donkey is killed because that donkey supplies water to a family of 12 people. And if that's your only way of getting drinking water, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're finished. And that's all these people are fighting for most of the time. So being there and having to experience, you know, where, where is the donkey? Why, why, can't I, why can't I drink? Because the donkey hasn't made it back from the well yet. Um, so you learn what's important and you learn why livestock is important, why water resources are important, uh, why the timing of the rains is, is so essential for the planting of crops. Um, so that's, that's all part of being there as well, is literally enduring the same thing that these people have been enduring for 20 years. And how did you find Adam? How did, were you following the, the bombings, the conflict, or did you have a fixer? Did you have someone that helped you on the ground? This was one of those times, what I was saying about doors opening, it's like you always, any time someone comes to you and says, hey, come take a look at this, or, or beckons to you, or points at something, like always go, no matter what it is. Sometimes it'll be something ridiculous. Most of the time it is, but it's hilarious, so, so that's a great experience as well. <laughs> But this was one of those times where I think what I think will happen is one of the soldiers just said, we should go up to this house. And we were really pushed for time and we had we hadn't even made it into the mountains yet, really. Um, and it was one of those things of like, should we stop? Should we not stop? And literally it was one of those times I remember thinking, yes, of course, we're going to stop and visit this family. Um and, and so we did. We walked up the hill. Um, you could see as we were approaching the house that some of the wood outside the house had been burnt. You could see where the bomb landed. And this is a, I mean, it, it's, a, uh, it's a small house. It's, it's two rooms made of mud and rock with a thatched roof. Um, and, yeah, there was just a cloth hanging over the doorway. And, and that's where the family was. Mm -hmm. I don't think they had any idea that we were, that we were coming. Mm -hmm. Did you speak to them? Yeah, we, we spoke to Adam a bit mm -hmm. um, and, and also his mother about what had happened. Mm -hmm. uh, they had pieces of the bomb that were still there. Um, his shirt was still in the corner. His burnt shirt was mm -hmm. still there. Um, and we wandered a bit around the house and, and the mountain they wanted to show us where the other bombs had dropped. Mm. So, yeah, that was just one of those situations where you have no idea what you'll find. Um, and, and so, luckily, 
someone just mentioned that that there was this family here in this house. Um, and that was a, one of the few times where we really saw, I guess, evidence of fighting. Um, because when we were there, it was quite quiet. Uh, we didn't get a lot of, or any active fighting. Um, we didn't see any bombings. Uh, but but this was evidence. obviously real evidence of, of what was going on. Uh, so And it's, it's one of those difficult things where you, you do want to be there when it's quiet because you want to be safe. Um, and maybe we wouldn't have been able to do the types of work we had done if, it, had if there fighting. had been fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, maybe it would have been good to get some, some evidence of the w- bombing was happening. Was that a goal of yours at that point was to document the fact that there was fighting going on? Or was it more of a journalistic instinct to find what you could? I think you just have to be happy with what you're given. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we pushed ourselves and the, the group we were with to to see as much as we possibly could while we were there. Mm-hmm. Um, the bear witness. So I think for, for the amount of time that we were there, uh, we did as much as we possibly could. Had things unfolded in front of us, that would have been um, obviously documented. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, it's a very difficult place to work. Yeah. Um, how many people were you traveling with and how long did that trip last? The entire trip took a month, um, but a lot of that time was waiting. A lot of that time was making sure that we had a secure route. Uh, it was myself and, and my Dutch colleague, Klaus, um, and then we were embedded with the SLA the Sudan Liberation Army. So there was about, there was a large group traveling with us at all times, um, between 10 and 20, I would say. Um, and were, that was... Were you traveling in one of their vehicles or... Uh, in a... the mountains, we were on foot. Oh. Um, it took two 12-hour days of walking mm-hmm. to get into the center of the mountains. And then we were on foot. Um, or donkey. And were the were the soldiers were they disciplined and were they respectful to you? And I, I mean, I know you mentioned avoiding a campfire with alcohol involved, but in the daytime and and the working hours, it's all good. Yeah, I mean, they they knew what we were there to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few times where, you know, you you really have to push people just to make them understand what you what you need to get. So, for example, there was a morning where I wanted, I actually, we hadn't been to that cave where people were, were hiding, but we had been told about it, and I was insisting we had to get to this cave before people woke up in the morning um, because that's when everybody will be there. Um, that's normally when there's activity, um, and I didn't know what I would see. Um, but that was one of those things. And again, we're on foot. So, okay, we need to go to this cave tomorrow morning. How long does it take to the cave? Oh, well, it takes three hours by foot. Okay, it's going to be straight up a rock cliff. All right, who needs a headlamp? Who needs a flashlight? All right, we're going to leave here at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. I don't want to miss sunrise. And then you definitely have people coming up to you saying, you're insane. Yes, I know, I'm sorry, I'm insane, but... 
this is the only time I'm going to be able to get to this cave. So we're going to be there for sunrise. I had a, <laughs> I had an SLA, SLA soldier who was a sniper, tough guy, probably the toughest man you'll ever meet in your life, come up to me and he told me that the situation in Darfur had gotten significantly worse since I had been there and taken control of his life. Um, and that was that morning where I made everyone get up at three o'clock to go to this cave. And he's like, after 20 years of fighting, I didn't think this, this could get worse, but you, my lady, have made this worse. Wow. <laughs> and and, we, and we, we got to the cave. Um, we woke up at 3, 3.30 um, and got to the cave for sunrise. Mm. And I could not have gotten those photographs if, if we hadn't. So, But no, everyone there was extremely um, respectful. And literally, when you're in Sudan, you're a guest in their mm. country. Mm-hmm. And people take that to an extreme to make you comfortable. And, and they did all of that. Um, it's interesting, though, though, I mean, getting again to the subject uh, that in this extreme situation and demanding things of people, they were respecting you and, and listening to you. And to some degree, you were leading them on what you needed to be done. In the- yeah. And there, and there would be some situations where I'd be ignored. Yeah. Um, but again, like this, this one guy learned ignoring me was not going to be the way forward. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, and then there were times where... You know, I had brought something up a number of times and, and then I'd send my male colleague and, and see what kind of progress he could make. Right, right, um, right. Sometimes he would do better than I, sometimes not. Um, you could use your B&H here. Get a lot done. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes he would come back more frustrated and, and send me back. Yeah. So, um, so to shift gears a little bit, the project you did in Burma on the women soldiers, can you tell us a little bit about that and how how that came about as a counterpoint to what you were working on in Sudan? Sure. And I think the, the two projects are very similar in the sense that Darfur and also previous to that, this work in Burma, were two stories that I had been interested in, I had researched, and no one no one was supporting me, basically. This was just something that I wanted to go do. I did this story in rebel-controlled Kachin, which is northeastern Myanmar, after spending a few years in South Sudan. I had been working for Reuters at that point in South Sudan, so I, I, I was kind of doing steady assignment work. And by that time, I just needed something different. Um, and so I kind of did this story in Burma as a way to test myself to see if I could actually do this, to see if I could go somewhere completely new, didn't know anybody, honestly didn't even go to the right country to begin with when I went to photograph this project. <laughs> um, but just to see if I could do it. And, and again, I didn't know what I would get. I knew that there were women in the Kachin Independence Army and same thing, I, f- I flew to Yangon, um, started meeting with people, um, met with different organizations, finally got in touch with some women who had been part of the military at one point in their lives. And it was just, again, months of talking to people, sitting, drinking tea, talking to more people, um, realizing that if I did want to do the work in rebel, con- in rebel control kitchen, I was in the wrong place and I needed to go through China. 
Um, but anyway, that's all part of the process. Um, and same thing with Darfur, just being very clear about what I was going to do before I got there. And what I wanted to do was spend time with the women who were part of this military movement. I had a bit of a different idea of what I would get because you never, never know what's going to happen once you're on the ground. And it ended up being, again, really quiet militarily while I was there. So I, I spend time um, really just following the life of these young girls. Um, and it was, it was sad and it was isolating um, and it was lonely. And so those are the images that I was making. Um, I had a vision, I guess, before I went there of, you know, women with guns and power and strength. And um, it's not what I got. Um, and that's not what it was. You can't pretend it's something that it's not. Um, it was these young girls who really didn't have any other option but to join the military. But you didn't go with at least the idea of you know, a women's empowering, I don't know what the word is, but a theme uh, for your work. So this was something that you were looking for in your work at this time. You didn't find it, and of course that's not the way you went, but but it's fair to say that that was kind of a goal. No? Yes, and, that was my And does idea. that, would you say, you'd like to see that pervade your work in future, uh, this idea that empowering of women around the world, is that something that's part of it or, or not so much? I think it's something I'll work with and towards. Um, and a, a lot of people have said that they really liked that work above anything else that I did. And part of that, I think, was I was really comfortable photographing. Um, and the women I were was photographing were also really comfortable. So I think it goes both ways as well. Like myself as a woman, I could just hang out with these girls. It wasn't a big deal. Um, and I mean, I did spend a lot of time with them, so they they were comfortable to a certain extent. It's fair to say that it would a male shooting this would have been quite difficult or, or impossible given the proximity? And I think it would have. Parts of it, yeah. not all of it. Um, but... I was with them at night when they were getting changed mm -hmm. or I was with them in the morning, um, you know, when they're going on their morning runs or um, when they're bathing, for example. I was there photographing. All aspects of the life. Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't a problem. Mm -hmm. Those are the interesting moments that you want to photograph or mm -hmm. at least I wanted to photograph because also we'll all end up with the same photographs. You're not telling anything new about a subject. There's lots of people who have photographed in Kitchen with the with the army there, mm -hmm. so um, and that's another part of it. What 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 can you do differently? Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe being a woman, I could I could do that differently. I could be there for these intimate moments. Has that work found publication? It has now. I think I was still hesitant to pitch the story before I finished it. I think I'm cautious that way because I just don't want to promise people things that I'm not going to produce. Yeah, I didn't have any support on that project until I finished it. And how long did it take to finish? I was there only a couple of weeks, only a couple of weeks. Um, and that work actually ended up being published 
I went to the Eddie Adams workshop, um, and that's when it, it was picked up by the New York Times. But before that, nobody was really interested in it. Um, it's funny how that works sometimes, is, is someone will show interest in the work, and then the, bo- the ball will start rolling. But that was, that was when the work was published. I think I've, I think I've just been lucky with the people mm-hmm. that I've been surrounded with. And I think the part of that, too, is where I've worked. I've worked in really isolated places. Mm-hmm. And I think what that does is it creates really strong community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also teaches you when you're in the middle of nowhere, it just teaches you honesty. The only way you're going to survive in the middle of nowhere in a tense situation is to be honest with everybody that you're with. And then you realize that's what creates the best relationships and community. And I think that applies just coming back to New York, even when I meet with people and as I try to kind of build relationships in the industry, if I'm not completely honest with who I am and what I do, there's nothing to base that off of. I mean, I, I communicate with most people over email. So when I do come back to New York to go for meetings or um, I've had the opportunity to work with Maggie a little bit in, in workshops, it's just amazing to feel that honesty in return. And those are the best people and that's how these communities are built. And I feel like I've, I have met so many honest, passionate people in the industry and that's just helped have you had any roadblocks put in your way that you feel might have been based on sexism or because you're a woman that you know of anyway? I guess part of it is just not believing in roadblocks. Mm-hmm. If you just, I mean, sure, things have happened that have crushed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I've, I've been lucky that, that I have gone unharmed in all of this. Um, but I just do my work and, and when I, when I'm anywhere, it doesn't matter where I am. If I'm in New York, if I'm in the middle of the bush in South Sudan, everything's going to go wrong. I'm one of those people where if it's going to go wrong, it's, it's going to be messy. (laughs) Um, but fine. And I think, I think part of that is just I've learned it's not going to go as planned. Um, it's going to be difficult. And that's part of it. And sure, some of that is because I'm a girl and um, I'm not as physically strong. But again, I, I, was, I was grabbed on Independence Night in South Sudan and, and a man tried to drag me down a dark alley. But on the other hand, the people that saved me were men Mm -hmm. and they came to my rescue and that was fine. And so I don't think you can, you can kind of say the world is, is one way or the other way, but you just have to go for it. And sure, everyone, everyone's going to have challenges for one reason or another reason, but I just, I didn't think you can really let anything stop you. I don't think that that depends on on your gender. That's your personality. Again, that's your personality. I'm not going to let someone else's opinion of who I am stop me from 
from getting the images that I'm there to get. Um, and again, I can't even compare my life as a woman to the life of a South Sudanese woman or the life of a woman who is internally displaced in Darfur with children living in a cave. I mean, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. Wow. I think this is a great, great point to stop the show. <laughs> Actually, say that. Before I start crying. <laughs> Before we all start crying here, I think this is a terrific place to uh, bring the show to conclusion. Uh, Adrian, thank you so, so much for joining us today and sharing stories. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. We have to have you back again here. Sure, Alan. John, thank you. Jason, thank you. Adrian, if, if, if our listeners want to check out more of your work, where should they look to? You can visit my website, which mm-hmm. is com. Okay. And I'm sure you're going to get a lot of visitors after this show. Uh, as for the rest of our listeners, um, we really value your thoughts, your opinions, Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video with the hashtag BH Photo Podcast. And please rate and leave a review on iTunes. My name is Alan Weitz. Thank you so much for joining us today.